we are hoping to show you just what is possible out there in our strange and wondrous world. One of the dogs started to howl. Almost immediately, all 400 dogs that were there started to howl along with it. We travel for business. We travel for pleasure. The conditions can change so quickly and it became very challenging to maneuver that kayak. We travel to expand our minds. Of course, the most dangerous animal in Africa is the hippo. More people are killed by hippos than anything else. Whether it's one state over. I was looking for a longer treatment, like 90 days, six months, and my treatment plan was to go hike the Appalachian Trail. Or halfway around the globe this fantastic high desert. You watch the sky at night, so you just see the Milky Way and shooting stars. If the world's a book, why only read one page? I'm Elizabeth Hill, and you're listening to a WAMC Northeast Public Radio production. This is Postcards from the Road. Support for Postcards from the Road comes from CEFQ, serving banking, insurance, and investment needs with more than 30 branches across the greater capital region. Also offering assistance to local nonprofit organizations through CEFQ's community support program. CEFQ, changing lives every day. CEFQ.com. On Saturday, March 2, 2019, the 47th Iditarod will kick off. The dog mushing race covers over 1,000 miles of the roughest terrain from Anchorage in south-central Alaska to Nome on the western coast of the Bering Sea. The harsh conditions include jagged mountain ranges, thick forest, barren tundra, and miles of wind-swept coast. Add in the frigid temperatures and some whiteout conditions, and you have an extreme challenge that has been dubbed the last great race. Catskill, New York native Ken Ham attempted this feat in 1983 at the age of 32. He says his move to Alaska is what sparked his interest in the sport. When I was young, I saw a couple of photographs of Alaska and always had a desire to go there. And when I got done with law school, I joined um, the VISTA program, Volunteers in Service to America. I wanted to do some legal services work somewhere, but VISTA hadn't placed me in any program yet. So I went to the law library and looked up legal services programs around the country. And Alaska, starting with A, was one of the first ones to appear. (laughs) So I sent a letter to Alaska saying I had been accepted by VISTA, but I hadn't been placed anywhere yet, and I'd be interested in working for them. And four days later, I got a phone call from Alaska saying, when can you come up? (laughs) And a month later, I was on a plane heading for Alaska. And where did you end up in Alaska? I ended up in Bethel, Alaska, which is 400 miles west of Anchorage, about 60 miles from the Bering Sea. It's in the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge. It's flat, treeless um, tundra area, not what you expect of Alaska. Usually you think of mountains and glaciers, but this, the environment in the Bethel area was much different. There were stores in Bethel, um, and they had most things you needed, um, but everything was very expensive because there were no roads coming into Bethel, and everything had to be flown in by jet from Anchorage. While you were in Alaska, you picked up a hobby, dog mushing. Can you tell us a little bit about it? When I started working for Alaska Legal Service, Services, a friend of mine said, you know, maybe we should get a dog team and that would make the winters go a little faster. So uh, 
we bought a uh, a mama dog and six puppies and um, started the team. The first year, it was <laughs> pretty hard because the puppies weren't trained and we didn't know what we were doing, but eventually we all figured it out. And eventually I bought my friend's interest out so that I had the dog team by myself. Did that lead to your interest in the Iditarod? Yeah, what happened was when I bought that mama dog and the six puppies, eventually one of the puppies had a litter and then another puppy had a litter. So the size of my team grew. As my team started to mature, a 300-mile race started up in Bethel where I lived called the Cuscoquin 300. And I decided, gee, I think I, think I can do this race. So I ran that race three times. And a lot of the professional dog mushers from the Anchorage and Fairbanks area came out for that race. And they said that if you can run the 300-mile race, you can run the Iditarod because it's the same thing with respect to taking care of your team, resting and feeding and so forth, except obviously it's a lot longer. And so I started to think, well, maybe I could do the Iditarod race. So I did enter the race and, and ran it in 1983. And can you tell us a little bit about the 1925 diphtheria outbreak and how it started Iditarod? In 1925, there was a diphtheria outbreak in Nome, and it was in the wintertime, so the only way to get the antitoxin there was by dog team. They took the antitoxin from Anchorage to Fairbanks by train and then took it from Fairbanks over to Nome by dog team. And in the original serum run, it was basically a relay. One team would take it for about 30 miles and then hand it over to another team. So in the original serum run, it was not the same team going the whole way. In the late 1960s, dog mushing was starting to die out in Alaska because of snowmobiles. And uh, a guy by the name of Joe Reddington, who's considered the father of the Iditarod race, decided to start a race in commemoration of that original diphtheria antitoxin run. And uh, the first year it was, if I remember right, 300 miles, but eventually the race got longer and longer, and now it goes all the way from Anchorage to Nome, which is about 1,100 miles. What does Iditarod mean? Iditarod is an Athabascan word It means place far away. It is actually the halfway point of the race. It's it's a ghost town that used to be a gold mining town. How did you train for that 300-mile race and then for the Iditarod? Running the 300-mile race was part of training for the Iditarod. A typical day was I was working full-time. I would get home from work at 4.30, and then I would take eight dogs out for a run, usually 30 to 40 miles, come back to the house and then take the other eight dogs out for a 30, 40-mile run, and then get back home at around midnight and go to sleep and then start the same, <laughs> the same thing the next day. On the weekends, I did longer runs. I would usually go out with the whole team together instead of two smaller teams, and I would do runs in the 40 to 60-mile range. Before the start line in the Iditarod, I had about 2,000 miles on the team in the five or six months before the race. How did you choose of all your dogs which one would lead? 
Well, you figure that out pretty fast. Um, the first thing you need in a leader is a dog that likes to run in front. Some dogs, when you put them up front, they spend all their time turning around to see what's behind them. <laughs> so you need a dog that likes to run out in front, and then you need a dog that's going to be smart enough to learn your commands and uh, take your commands when you tell them which way you want them to go. And then it doesn't hurt to have speed, too. You don't want lead yeah. dogs that are slower than the rest of the team. I had seven dogs in the team who could lead, but there was one dog named Lucky who, if I really needed a, an exceptional leader up there, he was the one I'd put up there. I I kind of say it was when I had Lucky up front, it was kind of like having power steering. <laughs> and there was this one section in the race where I was running a couple other dogs in lead. We were climbing up in some hills, and we came out above tree line, and the area was all windswept. And it was difficult to follow the trail. Eventually, I lost the trail. And I was giving my leaders commands, G and Ha, which G is go right, Ha is go left, going back and forth trying to find the trail and just could not find it. So I put Lucky up front, and I said, basically, I don't know where the trail is, Lucky. you got to find it. And he made a sharp right-hand turn, and in 15 minutes, we were back on the trail. Wow. That's awesome. So you're getting ready. You're packing up your sled. What can you bring? Are you supposed to bring all of the water for your dogs and the food that you're going to feed them and yourself? There are about 30 checkpoints in the Iditarod race. And before the race starts, the mushers send supplies out to those checkpoints. You'll send out dog food and food for yourself and batteries for your headlamp and booties for the dog's feet. I sent out almost 2,000 pounds of supplies to the checkpoint in advance of the race, and about 1,400 pounds was dog food. Oh, wow. What were you allowed to carry on your sled? You can carry anything you want to carry, but there is uh, mandatory equipment that you're required to carry. You're required to carry snowshoes, an axe, a heavy-duty sleeping bag, something to cook dog food with, a day's worth of dog food, a day's worth of food for yourself. You're also required to take some race promotional material, and that's a packet of envelopes that are postmarked in Anchorage at the start of the race and then postmarked in Nome at the end of the race. And the musher is given half of those envelopes to do whatever they want with, and the other half the race committee keeps and auctions off to try to raise some money for the race. Can you explain a little bit of how you cared for your dogs in the harsh conditions that you traveled through? As you're traveling along, um, you like to stop quickly every hour to check their feet to make sure they don't have snowballs in their feet. You may be putting booties on their feet to protect their feet in certain trail conditions. You also give them a little snack and just kind of check and make sure everybody's doing okay, that you haven't, haven't developed any sprained shoulders in any of the team or other little injuries like that. And then you usually travel for somewhere between four to eight hours on that pace of stopping every hour, and then you stop and rest. And you try to rest for almost as much time as you're traveling. And so you're, you're really you're on this schedule day and night. 
the best time to travel actually is during the night because the dogs seem to go faster. And I think that's in part because usually it's a little colder and the trail is harder, so it's easier to pull. And I think there's also some instinct that the dog has that they like to run better at night, especially at dusk and at dawn. They seem to really like to run. What happens if a dog gets sick or gets tired? I mentioned that there are 30 checkpoints in the race. You can leave a dog at a checkpoint. There's veterinarians at every checkpoint to look at dogs that have problems. And you can leave the dog at the checkpoint and the uh, dog is flown back to your home. So when you're done with the race, the dog is back in your yard. How many dogs did you have on your team? Um, I had 16 dogs in the team. That was pretty much the average size team uh, back then. And did you have to send any dogs home? Yes, I, I left four dogs at checkpoints. Um, three dogs I left at the Rainy Pass checkpoint only two days into the race because those three dogs had a very heavy coat and we were climbing in the Alaska range and, and the temperature was warm. It was in the 20s, 20 above, 25 above. Yeah. And the temperature was just too warm for them. Um, so they were, I could see they were dragging, they weren't pulling. So I left them in a checkpoint. And then just before the start of the Yukon River, I left another dog at a checkpoint, uh, Freckles. He had stepped in a moose hole on the trail mm-hmm. and had sprained his shoulder. What about you? and the endurance that it takes to complete this race. I didn't do anything special to train for the race other than all the training miles I put on the team. People don't realize the physical exertion that that involves, especially if you're on bad trail with ice where the team's going up hills or mountains. The musher isn't just standing there. He's, he's maneuvering the sled Going up hills, you're often off the sled, running behind the sled and pushing to help the team out. So if you've done the proper training of your team before the race, you should be in in good physical shape to do the race yourself. And about how much does your sled weigh? Fully loaded without the weight of the musher, somewhere between, I would say, 175 and 200 pounds. Wow. What was the weather like while you were racing? We had pretty good weather during the race. I I had made two predictions before the race started. And the first prediction was that when I went to the mushers banquet before the race to draw positions to see who goes first, that I was going to draw number one. And I did. So I was the first musher to leave the start line on 4th Avenue in Anchorage. And then the other prediction I made was that the weather was going to be relatively good. And um, overall, the weather was pretty good, although it did get uh, pretty bitter cold during the interior part of the race, especially about 100 miles up the Yukon River, heading pretty much straight north. And the temperature was about 35 below with a 30-mile-an-hour headwind the whole time. That that was really nasty. I had a little frostbite on my cheeks from that night. Did you run into any issues while you were traveling? The worst issue I ran into was the descent down the Dalzell Gorge from Rainy Pass. It's basically a three-hour roller coaster ride. The trail snakes back and forth over a small stream that sometimes has open water. There's a lot of glare ice 
very nasty section of trail. It's probably the hardest section of trail during the race. And being a rookie, I didn't know exactly what to expect on that part. And I got most of the way down, and I started to think, boy, I I really can handle a sled. And no sooner was that thought out of my mind that I collided with a tree and uh, broke the handlebar right off my sled. I was able to get the team uh, to the next checkpoint, which was Roan River, and splice the uh, handlebar back on the sled at that checkpoint. Roan River is an, an interesting checkpoint. It's nestled between kind of in a, in a canyon, and every musher at some point during the race is required to take a 24-hour rest. And because I needed to repair my sled, I took my rest then. But there were about 30 other teams taking their rest there at the same time. So that's about 400 dogs. And in the middle of the night, one of the dogs started to howl. Almost immediately, all 400 dogs that were there started to howl along with it. That went on for four or five minutes. And then when they stopped, you could still hear the noise reverberating off the canyon walls. I would love to have had a tape recording of that. (laughs) That sounds awesome. (laughs) You mentioned that 24-hour rest period. Was there any sleep deprivation that you suffered during this race? Sleep deprivation is a a terrible problem during the race. Most of the time, because of the schedule of your running to take care of the dogs, you're getting maybe four hours of sleep a day in total, and usually that's two hours here and two hours there. So as the race goes on, you get more and more sleep-deprived. And um, the last three days of the race, I got a total of four hours of sleep. So you're really in in bad shape with respect to sleep deprivation by the time you get to Nome. And one of the things that happens when you get sleep-deprived like that is you start to see things that aren't there. You start to hallucinate. And one of the things that I saw was flying saucers in the sky, And then I saw the tops of trees burst into flames. And as the dogs were trotting along at night, I saw lights on the bottom of their feet. And I had a friend who ran the race, and he kept hallucinating a cabin in the trail. And every time he'd hallucinate a cabin, he would stop his team. And then he'd go up and see, oh, there's no cabin. And this went on for three or four times. And then he's going along and he sees another cabin and he says, oh, I, I know about this now. I'm just hallucinating this. So he told his team to keep going and he ran into the side of a cabin. Oh, <laughs> it really was a cabin there that time. <laughs> <laughs> and I had uh, going up the Yukon River, I was traveling part of the time with a couple other teams. We would take turns as to who was going first, depending upon which team was moving the fastest. And his team was out in front. We had traveled for four or five hours, and his team pulled off the trail and stopped. And he was just standing on his sled and not moving. And I wondered what's going on. So I stopped my team and went up to see what was going on. He had fallen asleep on his sled, and he was just standing there sound asleep. So what was your game plan for the race? You said that you go at a pretty regular pace throughout the entire thing. Do you go for that regular pace and then speed up at the end? What was what was your strategy? You basically try to keep the same pace throughout the race and then try to speed up at the end if you can. 
when I had trained my team, when we went out for training runs and we turned around to come back home, when we were maybe 20 or 25 miles away from home, I would say to my team, let's go home, let's go home. And when we got 25 or 30 miles from Nome, I said to my team, let's go home. And it was like a lightning bolt hit the team. They stopped trotting and ran at a full lope for almost 20 miles. And we had the second fastest time between the last two checkpoints in the race. At Nome in the finish line, whenever a musher is approaching town, they sound the fire alarm so everybody knows that a team is coming in. And I had friends who were in Nome who were there to greet me at the finish line, and they heard the siren go off, but they looked at their watch and they said, that can't be Ken yet, that's much too soon. (laughs) So when I got to the finish line, None of my friends were there. Oh, no. (laughs) And it was because I got there about an hour quicker than they expected me because my team was so fast at the end of the race. What did you come in in the 1983 Iditarod? There were 74 teams that started the race, 54 finished. I came in in 27th place, and I was the fourth finishing rookie out of 27 rookies. Wow. Uh, My time was... 15 days, 10 hours, 15 minutes, and 15 seconds. And I was about two days behind the winner of the race. Did you have any issues after the race with the conditions that you put your body and your team under? The main problem I had after the race was I could not reestablish a normal pattern of sleep. I would go to work and I'd fall asleep at my desk at work. In contrast, at night I'd go to sleep and I'd wake up in two hours and think, I got to get going, I got to get going. I had a friend who had a similar problem uh, the year before, and he told me his wife had put a sign up on the wall next to his bed that said, The race is over, you're back in your bed, go back to sleep. So I decided, Well, I'm going to do that. Maybe that'll help me sleep better. So I put this sign up on the wall next to my bed fell asleep, woke up in a couple hours and saw it and thought, somebody's lying to me. And actually had my parka and my boots on and was heading out the door of my house before I I came down and realized the race is over, go back to sleep. (laughs) And you remained in Alaska for how much longer? I ran the race in 83 and we left in uh, 1989. And why was that? Just a change of scenery, come home to New York? Yes, it was a combination of aging parents back here. Also, we had a child at that point, and we wanted him to see his family back here. I think we were a little burned out on Alaska. The winters are are very long. Mm. The last winter we were there, they had a record cold spell, which meant where we lived 32 straight days of nothing warmer than 35 below zero. How much has the race changed since you ran it in 83? The race has gotten much faster. The winner, the year I ran the race, did it in 13 days. Uh, They now do it in nine days. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One reason is the trail is much better marked. You don't hear about people getting lost anymore like you used to. And now everybody has GPS. We didn't have GPS in 1983. (laughs) The sleds are now high-tech. They're lighter and stronger. 
runners that slide better on the snow. There's a lot more knowledge about how to take care of a dog during the race than there was then, about when to feed, what to feed, how to rest. And I think maybe the most important reason why the race is faster is the dogs are smaller now. It's a smaller, faster dog. They average between 40 and 60 pounds. They have a lot more speed, and they have a thinner coat. And the thinner coat is good during the day because they don't get overheated during the day if they're running during the day. And at night when it gets cold, they now use jackets that they put on all the dogs to help keep them warm. Did you participate in any races after I did a run? I switched from doing distance races to doing sprint races. Sprint races are generally two days in a row, sometimes three days in a row, and usually 20 to 25 miles a day. During a sprint race, the dogs run basically as fast as they can for 20 miles. And do you still have puppies? I do not have any dogs now. We had a a dog that passed away a year ago or so, and we haven't replaced her yet. What was your favorite part about living in Alaska? The favorite part about living in Alaska is it's the wide open spaces that mm-hmm. haven't been put haven't been touched by humans. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful state. And looking out my back window in Bethel, it was 30 miles um, until you got the nearest got to the nearest town, and that was a town of only 300 people. And then it was another 180 miles to the Bering Sea. They're just, it was, I lived in an area of the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge that was about the size of Oregon. And Bethel, which had about 4,000 people at that point, was the largest town in that entire area. Is Alaska still that open space? Yes, Alaska's still wide open. There's still no roads going into Bethel. There's been some development, but not very much. The state is two and a half times the size of Texas, and there's only 600,000 or 650,000 people living in the entire state. And most of those people live in the Anchorage area. So it's still a place that has wide open spaces. This year's race begins at 10 a.m. on Saturday, March 2nd. For more information from the Iditarod Trail Committee on the race, participants, and progress, visit www.iditarod.com. Postcards from the Road is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I'm your host and producer, Elizabeth Hill. Our theme music is Cherry Blossom Wonders by Kevin McLeod. As always, if you like what you hear, Subscribe on your audio app of choice. Visit wamcpodcasts.org for more information. If you would like to share your travel story with WAMC, email us at postcards at wamc.org.